0: I want to start today. Would you look up here with me at the screen and look through a couple of verses here? Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. To die is gain, an advantage, the the, the better thing. We, We can talk about death and still be talking about hope. Gosh, we can talk about death and actually include in the same sentence the word precious. You know, folks, to read these passages, to read the scripture, one would have to come to the conclusion that death is our best opportunity in life. Now that that would only be true for the follower of Christ, the child of God that's been born again, but it is absolutely true for that follower of Christ. You know, sometimes I I think, especially when I see a whole bunch of passages like that all together on death and what I believe, what we believe and what that does for us to see that. I, I think what we experience in that moment and then maybe what sometimes we can experience when we're actually going through a death or dealing with our own death, I think sometimes there's a disconnect between our experience and then what we believe with those verses. And you know when I say that, I'm not even sure where I'm trying to go with that, what, what, what that's supposed to mean. You know, I don't read these verses and think we're supposed to hasten our death. I don't read these verses and think we're supposed to pray, oh Lord, I pray I can die sooner than later. No, I, no, that the scripture doesn't say that. I don't don't think when we read these verses that it's wrong to grieve. I just quoted the the 1 Thessalonians 4 passage. It says we don't grieve. It didn't say we don't grieve. It said we don't grieve like those who have no hope. We grieve. But did you hear what that's saying? Our grief is to be different. Our our grief is not like the others because it still has this hope attached to it. Didn't we even see Jesus grieve? In John chapter 11, he's standing before the tomb of, of a close friend, a, a best friend-like person in, in Lazarus. And, and of course, in John 11, in that moment, we get our shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Now you stop thinking about, hey, Jesus why would you be crying? I mean, you know you're getting ready to raise him to life in just a moment. You know that even though he'll go on to live life, he'll die again on this earth. But then you'll raise him to eternal life. This isn't faith for you, Jesus. You know exactly what's going to Why would you be crying? He's crying because he feels what we experience. He's crying because he knows what death means. Here, here's what death is, folks. The good news, death is our last. The bad news, death is our greatest. Death is our last, but it is our greatest reminder that this world is broke and that the body that walks around on this earth is, is broke Oh man, we, we, obviously we can have fun on this earth. We can make a lot of things very enjoyable with our body. We got more and more ability to be healthy, to be strong, to, to live healthy and strong. Sometimes way into old age, we still die and we're going to keep dying to the tune of 155,000 deaths Every single day. It never stops. It never slows down. Death is our great and powerful enemy. But did you hear what I just read? Its destruction has already been announced. Death will be destroyed. And what we see today as we continue our study of the Gospel of Mark is we're going to see a little piece of evidence. That Jesus can actually say he's going to destroy death. We're going to see his power, his authority in that realm. Would you turn with me this morning to Mark... Chapter 5, Mark chapter 5, remember our purpose as we read today's message, our, our purpose as we look at anything in Mark is the same purpose that Mark had when he wrote those first century believers and that was to enliven, to embolden, to strengthen faith, to strengthen faith in the face of the cost of following Christ going up and we want our faith emboldened, strengthened as possibly the cost for following goes up. Let's look at this. Mark chapter 5, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live." And he went with him. And again, a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Now I'm gonna stop reading at verse 25, and I'm gonna pick up at verse 35. Now I'm not skipping verse 25 to verse 34 because it has nothing to say. As a matter of fact, we see one of Jesus' very exciting miracles in that verse, in those verses. But not only do we see a miracle, but we see something a little bit unique, a little bit different from his other healings. This is a great part of the story and it is a part of Jairus's story and there's a reason I'm not reading it and I'll come back and explain that in a moment. So let me pick up in verse 35. While he was still speaking there came from the ruler's house some who said, "Your daughter is dead." Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, "Do not fear Talitha, Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. Our story today begins like so many of the stories in the gospel accounts. It begins with that statement about Jesus getting out of a boat. It begins with that statement of, of Jesus crossing the sea. I've showed you a couple of pictures of the, of the Sea of Galilee. Let me show you one on the Sea of Galilee. Now you remember this is called the Sea of Galilee, Lake Gennesaret, Lake Tiberius. It referred to it as a lake in this passage, but it's most commonly called the Sea of Galilee. And it is 13 miles north to south, and it is seven miles east to west at its longest point. I'm in about the middle looking north. So, you know, what you're looking at from this, I don't know whose head that is. He shouldn't have been in my shot though. But anyway, uh, from here to about right here is probably two and a half, three, maybe three and a half miles. And and, and you see the outward lines of it. It's thin up at the top. And and what you're looking at here, folks, in this picture is about where two-thirds of the gospel takes place. You know, I think a lot of times we think of Jesus, we think of Jerusalem, right? And obviously some pretty big, some pretty important things take place in Jerusalem. But about two-thirds of his ministry, two-thirds of the stories we read are literally right here along these shores and in a walk into those hills to other villages, other towns. That's where two-thirds of it takes place. You remember I said... Uh, Capernaum is kind of a base of operations. Well, Capernaum lies right in here. And so when we keep hearing this phrase over and over, because like when I, if I just read crossing the sea, I think of like crossing the Mediterranean. That's going to take what, a week? You know, in one of these little boats. What what are we talking about crossing the sea? We're only talking about going from here, maybe to over here, maybe back to here, then maybe over to here, and then maybe down to here. It was actually the fastest way to get around. I mean, if you were to get on foot, and and this is actually a curve in this panoramic uh, picture, But if you were to get on foot, it would take much longer. So, a lot of the times when it says they're crossing the sea, they might have been out there for 20 or 30 minutes, maybe an hour. Maybe they were kind of leisurely about it sometimes. But they're really, and there's stuff that happens behind me. There's stuff that happens in the south end of the Sea of Galilee, but literally, most of it is taking place right there in that picture. And so, Jesus pulls up on the shore, okay, and right away it says a great crowd, a great crowd. I don't know. How many of that is? A hundred, five hundred, a thousand. A great crowd is there to meet him. I keep wondering, how does the great crowd know he's coming? Did somebody from the other side text say he's on his way? Shoot off an email? How does that I probably didn't text? Yeah, I'm guessing not. But somebody, man, there seems to be a constant runner, doesn't there? Somebody that's running out in front, sailing out in front. Hey man, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And man, when those three words were uttered, folks, that was exciting. Man, they're, they're, people wanted, to, they were curious. They wanted to go and see. They wanted to go in here. They wanted to see maybe a miracle. But for some people, when they heard those three words, Jesus is coming, it, it did more than curiosity and interest. It, it brought hope back to life. Maybe a hope that was almost dead. Think about what we've already seen. There was those four guys and their paralyzed friend. They heard Jesus was coming. They heard Jesus is here. And they, and they scooped up their friends and we're going to get to that house no matter what it takes last week man that one individual literally filled with thousands of demons and he hears that Jesus is here maybe fighting against himself maybe clawing against himself to get to Christ there's hope there's a there's a possibility there and, and then there's our story today it started at a house right down at the end of the street I mean we've all been by it you know mom and dad in there and their man they're a little girl she's 12 years old if i'd have continued reading right after that and uh she hadn't been doing well for a while and in the last two or three days it's she's become really unresponsive maybe even what we would call almost coma like i don't know i kind of imagine the, the the father says hey honey why don't you go to bed and get some rest let me stay up and take care of her tonight and and something happened during the night some of you've been in that hospital room where that happened something happened during the night and he just began to know his little girl's not going to she's not going to see the end of this day his wife gets up and comes in and he's trying to explain what's gone on what's happening and man, the range of emotions that can happen in those minutes, you, you, you can cover all the emotions. You can cover the whole gamut in, in, in such a short amount of time from crying and yelling and crying out to God to, to numb. Open my mouth, no words come out. And they're sitting there, lying there around their little girl. And they become aware that something's going on. Have you ever just been aware something's going on outside? And maybe you see somebody running through your backyard. That's always interesting. Why is that person in our backyard? I, I don't know. what. I, I, something's going on. And Jairus gets up and, and he goes to the front door and he looks out. And, and sure enough, somebody just ran by. Here comes somebody. What, hey, what, where are you going? What are you doing? Man, Jesus. Jesus is down at the shore. Jesus is here. And, and Jairus is, Jesus, Jesus, I I, I don't even know... I don't even think the thoughts get fully formulated before his feet are already moving. And and he starts running down to the shore. The Bible tells us that his name is He's a a synagogue ruler. We don't hear that name a lot, that position a lot, do we? We're used to, when you read the gospels, you're used to hearing Pharisee and Sadducee and priest and scribes. We've seen a story where scribes, remember when they lowered the paralyzed guy, there were scribes in there. We hear, synagogue ruler, we don't hear a lot. And probably for one reason, there there wasn't a lot of them. You know, like in, in our culture, we have churches. I mean, think about right out here, we got churches on every corner, don't we? I mean, one next to us, one next to them, one across the street. If you got a good arm, you might can hit the one that's next down Harrogate. I mean, we got a lot—hundreds of churches in a in a in a uh, in a city, in a county. That's not at all true here. One synagogue, one synagogue per community, and and outlying communities might have to come into that one community. So one synagogue, and then the synagogue ruler—he well, he rules the synagogue, right? That's not hard math. What does that mean? He wasn't the religious person per se, but he would, he'd be taking care of the structure. He would be in charge of the finances of this. He, he might be elected to that position. Some of them inherited the position. The synagogue ruler was kind of the liaison to the outer world. The outer world could be the synagogue in another community. The outer world could be Rome. If there's any interaction, any communication going back and forth, the synagogue ruler is the one who who did that. The synagogue ruler put worship together each week, what we call services, you know, get somebody to read, get somebody to pray, and they would get speakers, popular rabbis, popular Pharisees, people that were good. It doesn't say this. It could be, it's quite possible, Jesus and Jairus had already met. And that he would had Jesus speak at his synagogue. It could be that that Jairus was. I, didn't it doesn't sound like synagogue rulers would have a convention at least once a year. Okay, so maybe he's at a convention of synagogue rulers, and they're all talking about this Jesus guy. Some are against, some are for. But they man, I'm telling you, if you can get him to speak, I'm telling you the guy can shuck the corn. You, you really ought to get. Him. I, you know what? I don't won't know exactly what Jairus knows about Jesus, or how he knows Jesus, but he hears that name. And he starts running to the shore. You know, we don't know how far the shore is, do we? Is he, I mean, does he have an ocean view? Is he five minutes up? Is he a 15 minute walk, a 30 minute walk? It seems close. It seems close. And so he takes off and before he knows it, he finds himself on the shore there with Jesus and he's laying down at his feet. We call it probably groveling, begging. And that would have been a really would have been somewhat of an awkward moment. Now, obviously, everybody's there to see Jesus. They think highly of Jesus, He's a very popular figure. But there's social customs. There's social norms that kind of govern how we work. And, and sometimes those social norms are good. Sometimes they're bad. Sometimes they're just indifferent. But in, in this norm, it would have been very unusual for a, somebody like Jairus to be at the feet of Jesus. Jesus, is a, he's a carpenter. And of a common man, not, not a person of a lot of means. Jairus, exact opposite. He was a prominent member in society. He would have more than likely had a lot of means. He would have been, been wealthy. And, and even, even almost like a, not just a ruler of a synagogue, but just even a, a, a leader in community. And so to, to come up and see him begging at the feet of Jesus, I guarantee folks, this great crowd, they'd have been whispering, they'd have been pointing, what's, what's this about? What's going on here? And of course, we know, it's not like we don't know what's happening. He's begging for the life of his daughter. And it doesn't look like it takes much twisting of Jesus' arm, does it? No, Jesus says, man, let, let's go and do this. And notice the, what it says. It says that, that the great crowd went with them, that they thronged around them as, as they went. So as they're leaving, it's Jesus, it's his disciples, it's the Jairus, it's the great crowd. And they're all on the way to, to Jairus' house, huge parade when verse 25 happens. Now, now folks, I want to tell you something. As I said, what's happening between 25 to 34, and I think it's somewhat a familiar story. Many of you might be familiar with it. It's a woman that uh, has had a problem with hemorrhaging. For for over 12 years, she's had this problem. It kind of goes into explaining. It's kind of humiliating. And, and she had spent all of her money going doctor to doctor, help to help. None of it worked. All of it was embarrassing. And it was just shameful. And I, I don't know if it was the shame of it. I, I don't know if it was because it was the big crowd. Or, but here's what's unique about her story unlike any of the other healing miracles that Jesus does, this woman never presents herself to Jesus. She never introduces herself. She never says, will you heal me? But rather when this great crowd and Jesus, you know, the parade literally is going by, she just reaches out. Her faith is so great. She is literally thinking, if I can just touch him. Now, I think the real point of the story is that Jesus knew he'd been touched. Folks, when, when you believe on Jesus, he knows. You, you might wonder if he was too busy to hear. You might think he's doing other things. I mean, clearly she would be able to look at him and think, he's busy. He's going somewhere. He's doing other things. Yet she expressed faith in him and he knew it and he stopped. Jesus knows when we're expressing faith in him, when we're trusting in him. Now, having said all that, here's why I didn't read the verses. Because I'm trying to look at this story from the eyes of Jairus. And I think from Jairus' perspective, 25 to 34 is a blur. And it's a blur he did not want to happen. P- place yourself in his. But he's a father. His daughter is dying. Like, right, right, Jesus, right, right now, Jesus. Jesus, right now. She's had this problem for 12 years. How about 12 more minutes? Seriously, hey, I'll tell you what, follow us. Follow us, go with us, and right after he takes care of my daughter, he can, he can take care of you. A, I don't know what all he's thinking, but I think he's thinking this shouldn't be happening. I, I was here first, I asked first. My situation is urgent, my situation is, is right now. And Jesus pauses. And and as we start moving toward 34, and that that interaction between Jesus and that woman comes to a conclusion out of his peripheral vision. He sees somebody running from his house. He knows this isn't going to be good. His daughters died. You know, in my... In my job, and you won't be surprised by this, in, in my job, I'm, I'm around death a lot. Probably not as much as a doctor, not as much as the funeral home, but I'm around a lot more than the average person, right? And in and, and, and 23 years of ministry, here, here is something I've noticed with, with death. When there's a question mark, the pain and the grief and the anger runs much sharper and much deeper. I said, what do you mean a question mark? When there's a question about whether that had to happen, and and folks, I literally more than once I've been in a situation where somebody stepped outside for fifteen minutes, and and everything came apart inside. And you think, well, if I hadn't, if I hadn't. Maybe the doctor was supposed to do something and didn't, and and, and it doesn't even matter if what I'm thinking is right or wrong. If I think this didn't have to happen, this is a matter of a, a simple decision. This is a matter of a few minutes. That makes people angry. And in that moment, we really want to blame. And I've seen it. I've seen it over and over and over. And so While I don't know Jairus, and it's not recording what's going on in his heart and mind right now, I am confident Jairus is angry. Angry. Jesus, I told you right now. Five minutes. Five minutes. That's a huge if, folks. If you hadn't stopped, I trusted you. I came to you. If you hadn't stopped, if you hadn't taken care of somebody else first, but you did, and she died... You know, we see something else in this story that's very, very common in the human experience with death. When there's death, hope's over, right? Y- you know, we have tremendous ability to hope. I, I, mean, I mean, we can hope... Holding on to the slimmest of chances. The slimmest of chances in that diagnosis, in that in that job situation, in that marital situation, in the finances. I mean, there's just, there's no chance it's gonna work. But man, we're holding on to the slimmest of hopes. As a matter of fact, some of us, we've watched our family and friends hold on, haven't we? And sometimes you're watching it. Man, nobody wants to be a wet blanket on somebody's hope. But but you're watching them hope and you're thinking, man, you need to move on to plan B. I mean, you're, you, you know, you're, you're not emotionally involved in it like them. And you're thinking, man, you've, you've got to make another plan. You've got to start planning in light of. But we hope. I have seen hope after the diagnosis. I've seen hope after the divorce. I, I, I've seen hope after the lost job. But not after death. Th- I mean, that's it. That's... That's, that's the final. There, you, you, what, what are you hoping in? The, I mean, that's it. We, we don't keep praying after the death. We don't keep hoping after that. And maybe that's kind of where Jairus is. And Jesus knows. And Jesus speaks. Jairus, don't be afraid. Believe. How are you responding to that? I mean, folks, if I think honestly, me inside, I'm saying, I did believe. I did believe. That's why I came down here. That's why I fell at your feet. I did believe. And you paused. You stopped. Jairus, don't be afraid. Trust me. Now, remember back verse 24, 25, the whole crowd is going, right? But now look and see what it says. This time, remember, he's got 12 disciples. Peter, James, John, you three, come on. Everybody else stay here. Do not follow me. Okay, so there's a little bit of a change. Change. And, and so now it's Jesus, Jairus, Peter, James, and John. And, and we get to the house. And, and if I'd have read through the end of the story, which is verse 43, I mean, it's kind of kind of a weird thing going on. You've got Jesus clearing the place out. You, you've, you've got him saying, hey, she's asleep. What? She's not asleep. And, and then you've got, at the end of the story, you've got Jesus downplaying the miracle. You've got, you've got a couple of things like this. I mean, this happens... Well, actually, it happens until we get our first trip to Jerusalem. When he has not yet been to Jerusalem, he's been down there, to remember, to get baptized, but then he's back up here, and, and once he stays here, he, he downplays miracles. And he tells people, don't tell anybody. Well, gosh, that would seem odd. It seemed like that's the very thing we're supposed to be doing. But until he gets to Jerusalem, I think what's going on here, folks, the reason he's downplaying and kind of keeping it quiet, Jesus has an agenda. Jesus has an order here of things to happen. And he doesn't want these people trying to run away with him as a political Messiah, trying to come and, and, and bring about a kingship of, of Israel and attack upon Rome. Because That's not what he's there for. And so he downplays it. Now, after he goes to Jerusalem, then never again does he tell people. Oh, that didn't happen. You didn't see that. Shh, don't tell anybody. But here he does. Now, it's kind of interesting. He approaches the house and it it makes note that there's all this weeping and wailing and this commotion. You know, folks, if you think about it as Americans, and I realize we're made up of lots of cultures and we're not all exactly the same. But but boy, in America, we, we grieve very quietly. Have you noticed that? We grieve quietly. We grieve privately. As a matter of fact, even when you expect me to grieve, even when you know I'm supposed to be grieving, I'm going to put on sunglasses so you can't tell. We're we're very, very quiet about that. And when somebody breaks our little cultural custom and kind of falls out, we're we're uncomfortable with that. You are uncomfortable. I know you're uncomfortable with it because when I'm at the funeral home and somebody falls out, y'all all look at me like, what are you going to do about that? And I look back at you, it's your mom. You do something about it. you you see what I'm saying? We are uncomfortable with visible displays of grief, which makes us the complete and total opposite of the Jews. For them, grief was very big, very ostentatious, very loud. You wept, you wailed. And, and this is, folks, this is crazy. We, there's, I, it's hard to even understand this in our culture. They bought professional mourners. It came with the funeral package. As a matter of fact, I read even the poorest people in Israel would have professional mourners. What do you say? talking about professional mourners. You would have two to three people come to the house and they'd weep and wail. I mean, you think about it, your friends and family are gonna come, right? And your friends and family are gonna weep and wail. But I'll tell you something, weeping and wailing will just wear you out. I mean, it just gets tiring after a while. See, I gotta stop and take a breather. Well, okay, well, when the natural weeping and wailing kind of started to wane, well, then the pros stood up, said, I'll take it from here. And they they were in shape. They practiced crying. They practiced wailing. That's what you have coming up to when it says there's the weeping, the wailing, the commotion. And that's what Jesus is clearing out of the way. And here again, it makes note, very small group going in. Jesus, Peter, James, and John, Jairus, and mom. And they go into the room. And folks, just like we have seen now for the last two weeks, Jesus just speaks to our greatest enemies he just spoke to the storm. He just spoke to the thousands of demons. And, I, and you remember, for this is now the third week, I've kept making this point. You know, when Jesus speaks, he doesn't have to get loud and big like we would in Hollywood. He doesn't have to strike a pose and show how tough he is. And folks here, he literally, it's not just that he doesn't get loud and big. Jesus walks up to our greatest enemy, death. And he whispers... Talitha, kumi, honey, get up. If you look there in the gospel of Mark, he translates it. Jesus is speaking in Aramaic. He translates it, translates it for his, the, his audience in Rome and says, this means little girl, get up. Little girl is a good translation of Talitha. It, it, that is an, a, a, a literal translation, but it's a hard word to translate because it's a term of endearment. And in terms of endearment change, not only from culture to culture, they change from house to house. How do you refer to your children when you're using a cute little name, a pet name, a a love name? That's what Jesus is using right here. Jesus grabs her hand and he literally says, sweetie, sweetie, get up. Folks, do you realize every single one of us that's a child of God will get to hear our Savior whisper a term of endearment at our death hey honey come on home and did we not just hear the Bible tell us it's precious to God it's precious to God when we die Tim Keller here uh, has an interesting statement wrapping up what's going on here with Gyrus. Tim Keller is, a, is an author, a, a pastor up in New York City. He actually got his start in Hopewell, had a church there in the late 80s. He's up in New York City now, tremendous church, tremendous ministry. And he's writing about this. And he says, Tim, he's saying Gyrus got a whole lot more than he asked for. I mean, you think about it. He was asking to see somebody be healed, his daughter. What did he get? He got to see his little daughter raised from the dead. That's a whole lot bigger, isn't it? But Jesus also asked for a lot more than Jairus was offering. For Jairus was offering a faith that said, I believe you can heal somebody. And Jesus said, I want from you a faith that says, I believe you can raise the dead. And that with you, there is never a moment when death dies, when hope dies. Folks, I don't, I, I don't know for many of you what news you've heard 20 years ago, last week, what news you'll hear this week. News can be so overwhelming at times, can it? What we get that letter? That call, when that news hits just for like Jairus in that moment, it just, it just seems like there's nothing bigger, there's nothing more powerful, there's nothing more overwhelming and final than that, that piece of news we just got. Folks, it's in that exact moment that Jesus is saying, don't be afraid. Trust me. Trust me. Gosh, that, that news can sometimes so own the moment. But to that, Jesus says, I have all authority, I have all power, and I own eternity. Don't be afraid. Trust me. Let's pray. Father, while I don't, you do. You, you do know the news that this room has heard over the years of their life. You know what news they're dealing with right now. How overwhelming that feels. You understand that feeling inside of us. You you know what that is. Lord, we will look for all kinds of answers. We will ask for all kinds of miracles, guidance, protection, favor, all of it good. All of it very fair to ask you in prayer. I pray more and more our heart and our mind is open to hearing your very simple response. Don't be afraid. Trust me. We can trust your power and your authority in all circumstances leading up to the biggest circumstance we can't control death. For you do have control. God, may we live and may we live powerfully in that faith and may that be yet one more reason we would seek to so faithfully follow you no matter the cost it's in jesus name that we pray amen